This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Progressive, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a note for our middle-class listeners, the best parts of today's show were distributed directly to the super wealthy, and we hope you enjoy sharing what's left over. Bulls, Bears, and the Ballot Box is written by Lou Goldfarb and Bob Dietrich, okay? And the book looks at 12 indicators of the economy, including the deficit, months in recession, stock market performance, a number of different things, to look at how American presidents have performed over the last 80 years. Now, for years, I've been doing my own analyses of stock market performance and job growth versus contraction, comparing when there is a Democrat in the White House versus when there's a Republican. And the Democratic numbers blow the Republican numbers out of the water. On stock market performance, almost tripling stock market performance annualized. And on job growth as well. In many less years in the White House, Democratic presidents able to produce many million more jobs than Republicans. This book seems to agree, Lewis. Well, okay. You were right. Yeah. Out of these 12 factors that Goldfarb and Dietrich look at, under 11 of these economic indicators, Democratic presidents beat Republicans. Okay, now this is a number of different things looking at everything from average annual unemployment rate, average stock market performance, months in recession, a change in personal disposable income per capita, annual trade balance, etc., etc. 12 different factors, 11 of them Democrats outperform. The only one where, Democrat, where Democrats were outperformed by Republicans were, was the average annual unemployment rate. Now, again, that's a different indicator, the number of new jobs created. And if you go into the details of how the rate is computed versus looking at the number of jobs created, you would understand how you could have that discrepancy. Now, I'm just wondering, I mean, you could look at this and just on the face of it say that unless it's explained, you could explain this appearance of an improved economic outlook and situation during democratic presidencies as the result of cyclical changes in the economy <laughs> or the preceding Republican administrations. I'm, sure. just, I'm just saying. You're playing devil's advocate. Yeah. yeah, does it, the we book include about that information? Before. Absolutely. And we've talked about it before. So, number one, if it's purely cyclical, then the cycles seem to correspond directly inversely with Democratic and, and, and Republican elections, even when sometimes you only have four years in a row of a Democrat in the White House, and sometimes you might have multiple terms or more than that. Right. But specifically, does the book mention the reasons why the authors think that these economic results were obtained? I haven't read the book. So what, what I've looked at is the, res the, the data that's in the book. I haven't read the entire gotcha. editorial part. They may go into that. They may not. I'd be interested to, to look at that. The best fix for the Postal Service, writes Peter Orzag, formerly of the Obama administration, 
Now, where is he working now? Is he a professor or something, or is he going out and doing public service? Wait, because uh, I know this. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He's an executive at uh, Citibank. So Peter Orzag writes uh, of the recent problems with the Postal Service. The Postal Service uh, is expecting to default for the first time on its annual payment for future retiree health benefits. This is according to the uh, Times last week. The $5.5 billion payment is due August 1st. The Postal Service is also scheduled to make a $5.6 billion payment in September. The $5.5 billion payment was deferred from uh, fiscal year 2011. The August payment is for fiscal year 2012. Spokesman for the agency said, barring intervention from Congress, it would default on both payments. Understand what happens here. In 2006, the Congress voted to force the post office to fund the future benefits of retirees on a 75-year-out window. So in other words, people who are not even born yet, the post office is supposed to fully fund over the next 10 or 15 years benefits for them to pay out 75 years from now. There is no other government agency, there is no other private enterprise in the country, probably the world, that does this. However, a Republican-led Congress forced the, the post office to make these payments. Earlier this year, in April, the Senate approved a bill that would allow the agency to make uh, payments into its health care fund for future retirees over the next 40 years, which would have lowered the annual payment to about $2.5 billion. The post office now is in $25 billion arrears, I believe, for these payments, which of course is the five or six years since then. It is true that the post office is losing money and need to raise the rate of stamps, but 85% of the post office's deficit is a function of these payments. The Republicans in the House refuse to allow the post office to spread out these payments. So, what is the solution here? When you have a Republican-controlled House that is trying to kill the U.S. Post Office, what is the solution, says President Obama's former uh, budget manager? Well, he says, those who believe in the usefulness of government must be vigilant about making sure all of its activities are vital ones, since the unnecessary ones undermine public confidence. With this in mind, Congress should now privatize the U.S. Postal Service. Apparently at Citibank, they don't send out their bills via the mail. He writes, when the Postal Service announced that it would be unable to meet billions of dollars in payments that are coming due in August and September for future uh, health benefits, it provided further evidence 
I don't know what further evidence means. He says, the Postal Service faces three problems. First, Congress has not given it the permission it needs to cut costs and raise revenue. In other words, it will not allow them to make adjustments to the Postal Service and basically to raise stamps, to raise the price of stamps. And lawmakers seem unable to approve even modest reforms. Second, its market has been declining for years as email, electronic payment, and other alternatives to traditional mail have grown. Third, the economic slump has caused a further drop-off in mail volumes. Understand something right now. The post office charges the taxpayer. In other words, receives funding from the taxpayer. In exactly, they get exactly zero dollars every year from the taxpayer. Zero dollars. They have always received zero dollars from taxpayers. They have been an operation that funds itself completely through the sales of stamps, postal services. The post office has also improved significantly in terms of efficiency. Even uh, Mr. Orzag admits the Cato Institute noted a decade ago sorting 35,000 letters an hour required 70 employees. Today it takes only two. Over the past six years, the number of career postal service workers has declined by more than 20%. This is not an inefficient agency. The post office, he writes, lost $25 billion a year from, $25 billion, excuse me, from fiscal year 2007 to fiscal year 2011. Do the math. They're supposed to pay in uh, $5 billion plus a year to fund a pension fund for people who have not even been born. And that was instituted in 2006. So where do you think that $25 billion comes from? Peter Orzag, the former budget manager either can't do the math or just didn't think it was important to include in this piece. Now here's the point. Of the roughly 32,000 local post offices across the country, fewer than 7,000 generate enough revenue to cover their costs. That's an important thing to remember here, folks. In the case of the Postal Service, he writes, privatization has become the best path forward. Why? <laughs> it's simply because Congress won't act. And he says the best way to get around Congress now is to privatize the post office. Congress, which simply can't bring itself to allow the service to make its own decisions, and Congress won't do so as long as the post office remains part of the government. The post office has many assets which could be managed more efficiently if Congress got out of the way. In addition to its 32,000 post offices, it has 461 processing facilities, monopoly access to residential mailboxes, and an overfunded pension plan. Huh? These assets would attract bidders. Consider, for example, that many processing facilities and post offices sit on valuable real estate, and it may be smarter to sell many of them than to keep them. 
He goes, the, the counter-arguments caution against privatization, but none of them is convincing to Peter Orzag. The first, that Congress could simply unshackle the agency, but he doesn't see it being possible with this polarized Congress. So fixing the post office is not an available option because of politics. Therefore, we should sell off the post office. The second argument against privatization is only public sector post office can provide universal service. Well, it would appear so if only 7,000 of those 32,000 are profitable post offices. Does anyone in their right mind think that a private enterprise would maintain that? That's just all profit for them there. And he says... Privatization, yet, yet in sectors from telecommunications to electricity, universal service does not require government ownership. Let me think about what's different between electricity and telecommunications versus the post office. Well, the first thing would be that those wires are already in the ground. The most expensive part of providing universal electricity... <laughs> or telecommunications has already taken place. That is building the infrastructure. There is no postal infrastructure from the post office to the house. It doesn't exist. Well, I guess it's a road or perhaps a pony. So private enterprise has every incentive in the world to stop providing that. This is so disingenuous, it is impossible to believe that this man does not know, is not aware of this difference. He writes, privatization could come with the obligation to provide universal service. FedEx and UPS already delivered to almost all U.S. addresses. Yes, they do if you're sending something at a minimum of $12. So those 12 letters that you get in the, the mailbox, that 42 cents or 44 cents a letter, will now cost you 48 bucks to receive. Or I guess to send. For the hard to reach, unprofitable routes a subsidy could be provided. So now we have Peter Orzag saying Congress could actually pay out money to these private companies to do the service which involves no taxpayer money right now to the post office. I, this is so unbelievable. And, of course, this presupposes that Congress is going to agree to pay subsidies to these private companies. So now, Orzag is saying, let's have public subsidies for private mail carriers. This is just the most incredible steaming pile of horse crap. And I will also say it is probably the best articulated argument for privatizing the post office. 
they can be the same thing simultaneously, which is there is no valid argument to privatize the Postal Service. Labor compensation accounts for 80% of Postal Service costs, a much higher share than at FedEx or UPS. So ORZAG takes it a step further. Not only should we subsidize private companies for delivering universal uh, uh, delivery, which, of course, is really the only relevant thing about the post office, right? We should privatize it, subsidize it, and hopefully they'll cut the amount of people they hire and employ and cut their wages. So you'll have U.S. taxpayers subsidizing shareholders, CEOs, board of directors to a tune that is undoubtedly impossible to imagine wouldn't be at higher rates of compensation than we now have in the postal, office, uh, postal service. Cutting the wages of those middle-class workers who deliver the mail and sort the mail And all because Congress won't act to save the post office. What a bold proposal. This is honestly one of the most douchebaggish pieces I've ever, ever read, not written by Tom Friedman. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. ABC's This Week on August 19th was devoted to the question of whether or not the United States is going bankrupt. It's not, but raising the level of panic about the U.S. being the next Greece is apparently worth a debate. Anchor Jake Tapper ran through the ticking time bombs and fiscal cliffs. Viewers were told that over the next 75 years, Medicare's deficit will be $30 trillion. Absent any meaningful context, that number might as well be $300 trillion. But since the point is scary numbers, Tapper next turned to the old favorite, Social Security. He told viewers this, Social Security will run out of money in just 20 years. In short, if nothing is done, our national debt poses a clear and present danger to the United States. Well, that is alarming, sure. It's also false. Social Security doesn't run out of money. Tapper is probably referring to the date at which it will exhaust its trust fund. 
money that was built up in anticipation of the baby boomer retirement. After that date, absent any of the minor adjustments that are needed to shore up the system, it would continue to pay out about 75% of scheduled benefits until the year 2086. It's hard enough to have a serious debate about whether the United States will soon be Greece, but it's even harder to do that when the reporter moderator is peddling misinformation. But tell me a lie if it's true. Have you done all the things I never wanted you to? Baby, is it all that you dream? I think about you every night when I go to sleep. Pew Research has some new numbers out on what happened to the middle class over the last 10 years. And here's what happened. We got decimated. First of all, let me show you net income and how that uh, average American did there. You see, uh, from the 1980s to uh, 2000, we do pretty well, actually. You see that huge spike up from 92 to 2001? Yeah, that would be the Clinton years, by the way. Most proper, uh, one of the most prosperous times in American history, uh, most jobs created. Uh, so we're at 72,956. And then after all the tax cuts and deregulation by the Republicans, oopsie doopsie, we start losing income. The middle class loses income. And in fact, our average salary for all Americans comes down to $69,487. Now, how about our net worth? Because remember, they told us the tax cuts and the deregulation that's goes to the job creators, but then they create jobs for you and then you get richer. Well, your income didn't get larger, it got smaller. How about your net worth? Well, that also got smaller. As you can see, again, from 92 to 2001, huge expansion. And then in the early years of Bush, it does well until it falls off a cliff. Goes all the way down to $93,150. Right in the ballpark of where we started 20 years ago. Unbelievable. I thought tax cuts work. What happened? You took the top rate from 39.6 to 35, and you lost jobs. We lost money on average, our net worth and our income. It was a disaster for us. And it's not just the tax cuts, it's also the deregulation. That huge spike you saw going downwards was after the banks collapsed our economy. So it doesn't work, they're full of it. Now, what happened to the middle class? Well, we got smaller. The middle class back in 1971 used to be 61% of the country. Now, it's down to 51% of the country. There's literally less people in the middle class. More in the upper class and more in the lower class. We're becoming more and more polarized. And where did the money go? Well, it went straight to the top. Remember how it was supposed to trickle down? Nonsense. It went up. So, the middle class back in 1971 had 45% of the money in the U.S. I'm sorry, had 62% of the money in the U.S. Now, they're down to 45%. Look at that giant sucking sound, as Ross Perot used to say. But it didn't go up. As you can see, the poor got poor. They went from 10% to 9%. Oh, well, you look at that. The upper income. That tier went from 29% of the wealth in the country to 46% of the wealth in the country. So all those tax cuts through all those years, and the starkest years were the last decade, where the middle class got hammered. But it goes all the way back to 1971. Remember, before that, 
liberals are in charge. You know, all the way up to actually, to be fair, to 1978. You know, liberals are lions. You've got Ralph Nader crushing Nixon, getting him to pass the EPA, OSHA, seatbelts, etc., etc. The New Deal, Roosevelt, Social Security, Medicare. We have this golden era up until about 1978, and then we dive off a cliff. We elect Ronald Reagan, tax cuts, deregulation, etc. It does well for a while. And every time you raise taxes under Clinton, for example, you gain jobs. You know how many jobs Clinton brought in? 22 and a half million jobs. That is the best presidential record on jobs of any U.S. president. In fact, he now ranks number one in popularity among all presidents at 66%, beating Reagan at 63%, beating Eisenhower at 59%. You know why? Because the American people aren't stupid. They saw what happened in the 1990s, and they saw what ha has happened in the macro picture between 1978 and now, when they told us about the magic of tax cuts. Every time we do the tax cuts, it doesn't go well. Every time we raise taxes, it does, the economy actually does better. And remember, during our golden era, the taxes were up as high as 70 and 90% for, for the top brackets. That's the era that the conservatives tell us was the golden times, 1950s, 1960s, etc. And who do the American people blame for this? Well, they've got it pretty much figured out. When Pew asked them about that, they said number one culprit is Congress. They're right. And number two culprit, the banks and financial institutions. Right again, Bob. Large corporations come in third. Bush administration comes in fourth. Foreign competition is fifth. Then the Obama administration, then the middle class themselves. They're like, no, we're not blaming ourselves. We see the picture here and they might not have seen all those numbers and all those graphs but they have a gut sense for it that is absolutely right Congress screwed you and look a lot of times it was Democrats too at the end of the Clinton years which were so good as I explained to you economically at the end what did they do they deregulated the banks and that's part of why they crashed in the next decade so yeah Congress screwed you absolutely working in tandem with the banks and large companies who bought those politicians? They screwed you, and you lost money, and the top 1% gained the money. That's what happened. And it certainly happened in a big way in the last decade. Those are the reality, those are the facts. The wealthiest anomalies with their own privatized police while the silent majority will say it's for the best, obey the corporate. American dream Top 1% cannot be taxed The ignorant want their country back Take the reins and drive home And bust them into the capital Epic mass is dumb and dull where the black man wants to spread the wealth I swear the gays will go to hell God will save us from ourselves All right, so we're going to talk about Sandy Weil. Now, in case uh, you're listening, if you've never heard of Sandy Weil, he's the former chairman of C and CEO of Citigroup. And he was on the Squawk, Squawk Box recently on CNBC. I assume he went on there to explain how his plan for world domination was going swimmingly until James Bond ruined everything, blew up his secret lair, and stole his wife. <laughs> uh, you know, he was he was once viewed as a 
brilliant deal maker. Some critics now cast him as an architect of a shoddily constructed, unmanageable financial supermarket whose troubles have sideswiped investors, employees, and average citizens nationwide. I give you Sandy Weil, and here's what he had to say when he went on Squawk Box. So I think what we should probably do is go and split up investment banking from banking, have banks be deposit takers, have banks make commercial loans and, and uh, real estate loans, have banks do something that's not going to risk the taxpayer dollars, that's not going to be too big to fail. Uh, if they want to hedge what they're doing in their investments, let them do it in a way where it can be marked to market so that they're never going to be hit. And let's have a creative investment banking system like we've always had, where the financial industry can again attract the best and the brightest young people like they do in Silicon Valley, like they're doing in engineering. So, um... I gotta say, Jimmy, where do you find these whack jobs? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good grief. Well, listen, Governor, it sounds like it took Sandy Weil a long time to grow a conscience, and I think the technical term for what he's doing is called douchebag's remorse. (laughs) (laughs) So let me, can I just say when a guy who got Glass-Steagall repealed in the first place, tells you that it needs to come back. I'm pretty sure, Governor, it's time for it to come back. The same way you know you might have brain damage if Sarah Palin corrects your grammar. <laughs> I, I mean, we, let me just say this to Sandy. I mean, this this happened. People who support Glass-Steagall should not throw stones. <laughs> oh, <laughs> We can Thank edit you. that, right? Thank you, Governor. Yes. Uh, you know, you're telling me a system where consumer banks – so what he's basically saying is what we've been saying since 2007. And it's glad to see that it only took the former chairman of Citicorp five years to get as smart as me, <laughs> an idiot comedian. I was just going to say, but the investment firms are so big that they're still too big to fail, even if you separate them from the banks. But as long as they're not using government-backed money, if they want to risk their own money, that's fine. But, the, but, but, but his but, point is well taken, which is all of our money are in 401ks and mutual funds. Everybody has money in the investment banks in, it, indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, so their, their, their failure would wipe out huge amounts of retirement funds. And then trigger a, a big sell-off in the markets, which would trigger a depression. So the government's still going to step in when these investment banks get so big. So I still think you need more oversight. Has anybody... And I'm um, a jackass. I think we should create a law to fix this problem that rhymes with ass eagle. <laughs> Something like that. Has anybody uh, has anybody found out what Mr. Drysdale thinks of all this? <laughs> the, uh, from the Beverly Hillbillies. He was the banker. Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. Well, um, this was a big deal. That, that joke s- fell into the cement pond. But, but you know what? <laughs> that was the swimming pool the Beverly Hills. <laughs> By the way, that his point though is well taken. In the sense, you see, bankers were really conservative yeah, people, right. and they didn't screw around with money. They, they. I'm you sorry, know, Robert. When was that? Uh, before the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and and by the way, and after the depression. And let me clarify one thing: uh, Glass-Steagall was uh, killed by a thousand cuts. Yes. Its first cut comes right. in 1980, yes. which leads directly to, to the SNL crisis, SNL, mm-hmm. which is billions of dollars that the government again paid out to banks to bail them out. Yes. And then... And the, but people went to jail. 
Which he, didn't happen this time. Not I enough. think the SNL crisis ended when they got Kristen Wiig. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you ever be serious? <laughs> oh, I got it. The SNL crisis. Okay, she's a girl on... Okay. Okay, and let me just say that that was a big deal that that he said that, Sandy Weil said that. Because he was an architect of removing Glass-Steagall. Right. He was one of the major driving forces who lobbied the Clinton administration into completely eliminating Glass-Steagall. And it marked the first time in American history that a Wall Street banker told the truth. So that's, what, <laughs> that was a big and deal. And what, what year was in the Clinton administration was it uh, repealed? 90, 99. So. Well, it's, it's really great when I think back on that era how, how when you turn on the cable news or the, or the newspaper, all they were talking about was how Glass-Steagall was being repealed. Nobody how, talked mm-hmm. about about what an awful thing it was. It was jammed mm-hmm. through in the dark. I mean, nobody knew. Well, because everyone was talking about Monica Lewinsky. Yes. You know, and, and how much money went, they were making and, with their technology stocks. Yeah, right. and if you look back, if you watch any <coughs> show from that era as Glass-Steagall was being repealed, I'm sure most of the show was about Monica Lewinsky. I mean, they, you know, Governor, uh, they actually asked Timothy Geithner. Uh, what his response to this was. A guy got a camera and a microphone in front of his face, and I'm going to play it for you right now. He's getting out of a car, Timothy Geithner, who's the Secretary of the Treasury, he's getting out of a car, and he's walking into a meeting somewhere, and a reporter catches him, and here we go, here we go. Secretary Geithner, Sandy Wild just said on CNBC that he thinks the big bank should be broken up. Any reaction? He's one of the architects of the supermarket concept. That changed the debate at all, sir? Okay, there you go. That's what he had to say. Nothing. He said nothing. Wow. Hey, wow. Secretary of the Treasury, the biggest banker in the history of the world, just said we should reinstitute the Glass-Steagall. You have any comment? Nothing. You, you nothing. have any comment for the people that you work for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have any, exactly. Exactly. Right. The people of America, do you have a comment on They'd this? They'd like to hear what you as their employee have to say. So what is it? Why would Sandy Weil come out and say this now? Why would he admit that what he did screwed everything up? Why he wants to die with a clear conscience? I think three ghosts might have visited him Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that? Because he is 79 years old. Mm. I think it, it could be the first. Well, here's what I, here's the re, he kind of let on. Here's the real reason. He's, 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 there is such a feeling among people, uh, among regulators, among uh, uh, the uh, political system all over the world against the banking system and I don't think that's going to change so soon. Basically, nobody would stand up, stay, take our shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, guess what? I guess we'll stop doing this. I already got my billion. See it was ya. a great run. Yeah. <laughs> so he's basically saying, like, people don't like us anymore. We need to stop being so unlikable. It's like the last looter coming out of the store yes. with a TV going, looting's wrong. We should really, this is hurting people. Well, it was. it's like the guy who um, just got done selling everything that he sold, that he looted, Coming back to the empty store going, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't right. Because that's exactly – yeah, you think people wouldn't take his stuff anymore. Then they, stay, they stole trillions of dollars and people aren't ever getting it back. He's 79. Sure, reinstate it. I don't care. And you know what? The, the intelligence behind him coming to this conclusion now, I would think he would have come to that conclusion a long time ago. And it would have – it would have done some good if he had come to this, if he had said this while it was all happening, you know, or before yes. it was all happening. Okay, of course, he's to not- say it now, after the, the the same way all the Iraq War people 
say right. after like the Chris fact. Chris Matthews. That yeah, and Colin Powell. That you know it was a big mistake. Um, it, it doesn't do it doesn't do anybody any good really. When well, they say don't that. you think part of the problem is that we deify people that amass huge amounts of wealth yeah. and never really put it in the I context. Don't think that's a problem at all. I think <laughs> <laughs> we never put it in the context of the toll that it may have taken on other people, the toll that it may take on their family. Uh, Are you saying that America is a superficial culture that well, worships wealth, no matter how you get it? That's been that way all. I mean, that we worship gangsters in America. Right. I mean, that's we've true. all we always have so it's 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 wealth that we worship in america and that's the american culture it's get money no matter how and if you don't have it it's because you're a bad person poverty has been demonized in america mick would you agree with that i don't think it means uh, if you're not wealthy you're a bad person i think it just means that you're a loser <laughs> <laughs> can I, there's a big difference can i just deconstruct one thing that this guy is saying he's saying i'm a banker bankers are holes we need laws so that we can't be ass. We can't just do it on our own. Right. right. We can't stop being greedy yeah. bastards. We need laws to stop us. Well, yeah. You know, basically, you know, it's funny you say that, Robert, because they ask him about the culture of Wall Street, and here's what he has to say. They ask him this great exact question. I wanted to talk to you about the culture of Wall Street today. Um, and there's a great sense in the, in the public psyche of, of distrust about Wall Street, uh, whether it be the Facebook IPO not working, whether it be the LIBOR scandal, whether it be questions about uh, this trading loss at J.P. Morgan. What do you think about the culture of Wall Street today? I think that 99% of people on Wall Street are very are, are honest, they're ethical, they care, they care about the country, they care about their shareholders, they care about what people make. Their future is really connected. I mean, the financial industry is connected to the country, to the economy of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always have bad apples in, in any kind of a business. Yeah, you have a few bad apples in any kind of business. And on Wall Street, we call them chief executive officers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he supports the 99%. Yeah, yeah, isn't it something he's really sticking up for the regular guy? You know, for, uh, for a guy Sandy's age, he really can swing a shovel. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> They're really such good people that they feel really bad about all the money they stole from people, though they are glad that they're never going to be punished for it. It worked out then. Yeah, it really worked out for these guys. He didn't ask them. And also, you know, Wall Street, uh, or all the, there is all this wealth that's just there, and and they're not investing it because. Right. So how how does that make them good people when they could be, they could a, a corporation with a gigantic amount of cash, which a lot of these people have, or or assets, however you say it. <laughs> they're sitting on them. They're, they're just, just sitting, sitting on, on them. them. They're not they're not investing them, and and it would be a patriotic thing. For them to do to invest it. Hey, it's the They're uncertainty not in the market. It's, it's the uncertainty. But the, yeah, the uncertainty. But they have all this money, though. Frank, I mean, I know. If the, the problem here with this question and this answer from Sandy Weil is he didn't ask Sandy Weil about the people on Wall Street. Most German soldiers were honest, hardworking people. What Especially he was, uh, Colonel Clink and What uh, he was asking was about was the culture that allows honest, well-intentioned people to do horribly evil and destructive things like bundle no-doc mortgages they know are worthless, mm -hmm. slap a AAA rating on it, and sell those toxic, worthless bonds to unsuspecting customers like teachers' pensions funds, all the while taking a boatload of cash as commission. That's the question he was asking you about, is that culture that allows good people to do horrible, evil things. 
he has to go as to, a matter of course. He has their to, business was built on fraud. They would lose their we, job if they didn't do that. Yeah, right. he has to face those people on the weekend, right. Jimmy. So he's never going to say that. No, you're you're right. You're right. He's never going to say that. He's you're, always got to say it's a few bad apples. He can't say where there's an illness in the banking system and it's worldwide and we've all got it. Yeah. We've all got an illness, and we can't help but be destructive to the economies that we participate in. They're not creating wealth. They're transferring wealth, right. and that's a big difference. Yeah. The, I love how he goes, the financial industry is connected to the economy of the world. Evidently, this guy isn't connected to the reality of the world. Let's just take one example. The corporate officers at USB have made roughly $34 billion in the last five years while losing $44 billion. The whole of the credit default crisis comes from betting against the well-being of the world markets. If anything, the people in the financial industry are connected to the world economy in an inverse proportional way. They're not really connected to the real economy. Right. Jamie Dimon just they just lost nine billion dollars and he got a bonus. Nobody's they're not connected but to the Jimmy, real let's economy. Em- let's emphasize though that you said they made thirty four billion dollars over a five year period. <laughs> so it's not like they just had thirty four billion dollars over it came gradually. Jimmy, that would be like KPFK paying you zero dollars over five years. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he makes it sound like it was just a few rogue traders or two, which is total BS. But even if it wasn't, what the hell is wrong with your business that something like this can even happen if it was a few bad apples? A few bad apples can crash the world economy and bring Citicorp down to $1 trading a share? That's I, I Hey, I used to work at Starbucks. The most I could have cost my company was $15 in pastries. That's a system <laughs> you can trust. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. President Obama's Achilles heel remains the economy, with unemployment still stubbornly over 8%, and with the pancaking of household incomes, he's got a hard case to make to the American public. And already in the latest polls I've seen, more Americans think Romney would do a better job on the economy. To some extent, Obama's sure getting a bad rap, but he does bear some of the burden for the bad shape people are in. Yes, Bush left Obama with a huge mess. Yes, Obama saved the country from falling into an all-out depression. Yes, his stimulus package did create about 2.5 million jobs. And yes, the Republicans did throw sand into all the gears and even into the gas tank. But Obama could have done more. His stimulus bill should have been much bigger, 
as he was advised at the time, and he desperately needed to stabilize the housing market by either putting a moratorium on foreclosures or forcing the banks to write down the principal on everybody's mortgage. Instead, he tried one half-hearted housing measure after another and even left a couple hundred billion dollars that Congress had authorized for this sector just lying around. The voters may hold him accountable for that on November 6th. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The lamestream media is not going to have Sarah Palin to kick around anymore. Despite turning up unexpectedly in Republican primary races around the country this year, endorsing candidates here and there, and thereby sort of keeping her hand in national Republican politics, we now know that Sarah Palin has not been given a role of any kind at the Republican National Convention this year. You now they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? Lipstick. She was the vice presidential nominee at the last convention. She was the star, but this year, bupkis. They did not give her anything. She has been kicked to the same curb as the last Republican who was elected vice president, Dick Cheney, and the last Republican president. He served two terms, and not that long ago. But George W. Bush, as well as Dick Cheney, they, they will be hidden away from view when the Republicans have their convention this year. Now, the Republicans did spare a thought for old John McCain, who got the party's presidential nomination last time around. They're at least letting him in this year. But he doesn't have a significant thing to do. He's not keynoting. We found out today that that'll be Chris Christie. He's not introducing this year's nominee. That's going to be Marco Rubio doing that. No, the Republicans' last presidential nominee doesn't actually have a specific thing to do at the Republican convention this year. They just announced he would be there speaking in some capacity. They announced him at the same time they announced that Nikki Haley would be there and Susanna Martinez. Oh yeah, and John McCain too. If you didn't have access to the information that the last person the Republicans put up to run against Barack Obama was a guy named John McCain, would you be able to discern any sign of that in the universe right now? It's like it never happened. After McCain and Palin lost the last presidential election, John McCain just sort of dissolved back into the Senate. It's like he never ran. After the election, Sarah Palin quit her job as governor of Alaska. She said she was going to work full-time on national Republican politics. And she did do that Mama Grizzly thing, and she does make endorsements sometimes, but she did not run again. Nobody thought she'd have a shot if she did run again. And mostly, she and her family are just doing reality shows now. She had a reality show, her daughter had a reality show, plus the dancing thing, and now her husband has a new reality show as well. Nobody in current Republican politics calls themselves a Sarah Palin Republican. Nobody calls themselves a John McCain Republican. What is the Republican Party after Bush and Cheney? Who is the new face of the Republican Party? What does that party stand for? If Romney and Ryan lose this year, I'm not saying they're going to, but if they do lose, are these guys going to have any more of a chance than McCain and Palin did of defining the new Republican Party, of becoming the face of what it means to be a Republican after Bush and Cheney? 
I think some of the excitement on the right about Paul Ryan is not that he necessarily is going to help Mitt Romney win in November. We talked just a moment ago with Steve Schmidt about Republicans saying that having Mr. Ryan on the ticket may make it more likely they will lose in November. But I think the excitement about Mr. Ryan nonetheless is among party activists and hardcore partisan folks and conservative movement folks who look at this guy Paul Ryan and say, yeah, he may not help us win, but that is the face we want on the future of the party. He is who we want to define what it means to be a Republican, post-Bush, post-Cheney. We didn't actually want that in the end from McCain or Palin. And if Mitt Romney does not win in this election, I don't think any Republicans going to be looking to Mitt Romney for that definition for their future party either. But win, lose, or draw, they like Paul Ryan as the guy who means Republican in America from here on out. <clears throat> if that is what's going on with all the enthusiasm for Paul Ryan on the right, even as the rest of the country appears to be rather repulsed by him, going by the polls. If we are going to be talking about Paul Ryan as Mr. Republican from here on out, I would like to request that we please define our terms. Paul Ryan is most often described in the mainstream media as a fiscal conservative, right? Romney picks fiscal conservative Paul Ryan as running mate. Here's ABC explaining the morning of the announcement who this Paul Ryan is. Quote, Ryan, 42, a seven-term congressman from Janesville, Wisconsin, is known as a fiscal conservative. Slate.com, a wonderful thing has happened for this country. Paul Ryan will be the Republican nominee for vice president. Ryan is a real fiscal conservative. This, this is just the shorthand for describing what Paul Ryan is. He's a fiscal conservative. My favorite definition of what it means to be a conservative, period, uh, is from the mission statement from the National Review magazine, which William F. Buckley wrote in 1955. He said the National Review would, quote, stand athwart history, yelling, stop. Well, if being conservative means you are standing athwart history, yelling, stop. If they're saying, stop with the progress, keep things as they are, conserve what exists, and fight efforts to change things. If that's what a conservative is, what's a fiscal conservative? The way we use the term fiscal conservative, it's, it's supposed to mean not somebody opposed, opposed to progress whole scale, but somebody opposed to profligacy. In government, it's somebody who doesn't want the government to spend more than it takes in. That's the label that everybody is affixing to Paul Ryan, saying his fiscal conservatism is why he was chosen for vice president and why should we, we should expect him to be around for a long while. If we really are going to be stuck with Paul Ryan as the face of republicanism for a long while, and if the term fiscal conservative is supposed to mean anything, we should get clear that there may be a lot of great stuff to say about this guy. But fiscally conservative is not one of the things you really can say about him. During the Bush-Cheney era, Mr. Ryan, as a member of Congress, voted for all of the things in the George W. Bush era that cost a lot of money and that were not paid for at all. Two massive tax breaks, two wars, the Medicare Part D expansion, which cost hundreds of billions of dollars, the Wall Street bailout. None of those things were paid for. Every penny of their costs were added to the national charge card, asking future generations to pick up the tab. A fiscal conservative would not have made those votes during the Bush-Cheney era, but Mr. Ryan did. In the Obama era, Mr. Ryan is now pushing a budget that keeps the Bush tax cuts. Again, whether or not you like the Bush tax cuts, they are not a fiscally conservative thing. They were not paid for. They were just larded onto the deficit. He keeps those budget-busting Bush tax cuts whole, and then he adds onto them more than $4 trillion more trillion in tax cuts that hugely, disproportionately, go to the richest people in this country. Hundreds of thousands of dollars going to every millionaire in the country. That's expensive. How does he pay for it? He does not say. He says that's not his call to make. You may agree with that or you may disagree with that. 
But the point is, it should not be called fiscally conservative. It is something else. In fact, it is something else very specific that Congressman Paul Ryan, until recently, was very, very happy to talk about. The reason I got involved in public service, um, by and large, if I had to credit one thinker, one person, it would be Ayn Rand. It's so important that we go back to our roots to look at Ayn Rand's vision, her writings, to, to see what our girding, undergrounding principles are. Ayn Rand, more than anyone else, did a fantastic job of explaining the morality of capitalism, the morality of individualism. And this, to me, is what is matters most. That's what matters most. The reason I got involved in public service, Ayn Rand. Whether you are uh, delighted or terrified by the prospect that Paul Ryan is the new face of the Republican Party, it is important to get straight that he is not a fiscal conservative. If he was, he wouldn't be proposing $4 trillion to be given to people who are already rich without specifying any means of paying for it in the budget. What Paul Ryan is, is not a fiscal conservative. What Paul Ryan is, is a follower of this person, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is a novelist who most famously wrote the book Atlas Shrugged. Over the course of his political career, Mr. Ryan has cited that book and Ayn Rand as the defining influences on his thinking. He told the Weekly Standard several years ago, I give out Atlas Shrugged as Christmas presents and I make all my interns read it. You know, it doesn't surprise me that sales of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged have surged lately with the Obama administration coming in. Uh, because it's that kind of thinking, that kind of writing that is sorely needed right now. And I think a lot of people would observe that we are right now living in an Ayn Rand novel, metaphorically speaking. Paul Ryan has since said that it is an urban legend about him that he was ever a follower of Ayn Rand. Dude, it's not an urban legend if that's you on tape saying it about yourself, repeatedly, for years, and with feeling. In Ayn Rand novels, uh, she leads her readers to see the very wealthiest people in society as heroes. Heroes who must be protected from taxes, from the government, from regulation, from bureaucracy, from anything that rich people might find restrictive in any way toward them becoming more rich. The rich are heroes and everybody else is a taker. And the more the rich have, the better. The better for everyone. That is not fiscal conservatism either. It is something else. When the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a respected nonpartisan budget think tank, looked at Paul Ryan's plan for the country back in March, this is what they concluded. They said, the new Ryan budget is a remarkable document, one that for most of the past half century would have been outside the bounds of mainstream discussion due to its extreme nature. In essence, this budget is Robin Hood in reverse, on steroids. It would likely produce the largest redistribution of income from the bottom to the top in modern U.S. history and likely increase poverty and inequality more than any other budget in recent times and possibly in the nation's history. Mitt Romney has been vague on the specifics of what he would do for the country policy-wise. Paul Ryan has not been vague. He has been really specific. And despite the hype, what he would do doesn't have much to do with the deficit. It's this Ayn Rand stuff from Atlas Shrugged and from the Fountainhead about how important it is to have very, 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 very rich people. How important it is to take care of the rich. This is a real philosophy. It is a fringe one, but it is a real philosophy. And it has nothing at all to do with fiscal conservatism. It is something else. I think a lot of people would observe that we are right now living in an Ayn Rand novel, metaphorically speaking. Paul Ryan, since he has been chosen as vice president, has been shorthanded throughout the media as a fiscal conservative. If you are going to call him that, please define your terms. And please express to me what happens to that $4.6 trillion that he shifts toward the rich, how it is exactly that we pay for that. And if that counts as fiscal conservative to you, you don't speak English.
the Republican strategy is, and it was over the last four years, hurt it do everything you can not only hurt President Obama but hurt the economy. Okay, then turn around and blame President Obama for the economy that's been hurt. I mean, they're brazen about it. Mitch McConnell said our number one mission is to make sure re, uh, President Obama doesn't get reelected. They filibustered everything that could help. They hated the stimulus project, even though Paul Ryan voted for stimulus under George W. Bush. Then he comes out and gives a speech where he says, hey, you know what? Uh, can you believe four years later, uh, America's credit has been downgraded? But listen to what S&P said at the time when they downgraded it. First of all, they generally said, look, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to get a deal when this should be the easiest thing in the world because you are not asking for new debt when you're raising the debt limit ceiling. What you're saying is the government will pay its old debt. Okay, that's a very, very big difference. And when the government says, ah, I'm not going to pay my old debt, well, that's when you turn into a third world country and creditors worry, hey, is their word good enough? I mean, if I buy a bond with the U.S. government, am I going to be able to get my money back? Well, these Republicans are saying, no, that's a huge political issue, and they might not pay us, right? That's why they lowered it. And S&P was very clear about it. They said the fact that they're playing politics with the debt ceiling shows that we have less trust in whether the American government pay will pay back its creditors, right? And who started that fight? No one in the country can disagree that it was the Republicans who started. Democrats would have raised the debt ceiling in a second. They have a million times. In fact, the Republicans have a million times until Obama was in office. And they're like, oh, goddamn Obama. All right, that's it. We're creating a fake fight here. And in case you're not sold yet, here's what S&P said at the time. Quote, we have changed our assumption on revenue because the majority of Republicans in Congress continue to resist any measure that would raise revenues. So it's not just that the Republicans were being obstinate, which they talked about in the report as well, but saying, look, you've got one major party in the country saying they will not raise revenue under any circumstances. It leads us to believe that you will have giant deficits going forward because the Republicans want the deficits. They don't want to raise revenue. They want to forestall that at, at all. So they downgraded us because of Republican action. It's in their report. And then, of course, Ryan comes on and says, can you believe Obama downgraded us? That's the Republican strategy for the last four years in a nutshell. This is Max Cullen from the People's Republic of Davis, California. Uh, I just wanted to draw your attention to a recent, uh, I think the most recent, uh, Black Agenda Report, uh, which is one of my favorite uh, podcasts, period. Uh, it's Glenn Ford's Black Agenda Report. And uh, the entire second half is a is an interview with a, an African-American professor um, about right-wing uh, conservative uh, missionary groups that were encouraged by the Reagan administration to promote an anti-gay agenda throughout Africa. And it's a fascinating interview. It goes into some depth about how um, homosexuality is a perfectly normal thing in Africa, and it was always thought so to some extent, um, until right-wing conservatives from the United States started bringing in the familiar story, familiar to us, about how the gay agenda is trying to subvert the country and take over the world and um, it's gained a lot of traction in uh, Africa 
as part of the Reagan administration's program against the spread of liberation theology, which is a leftist current of religion. I hope you check it out. Thanks. Keep it up. Hi, Jay. This is John from Reno. On um, the religion show two episodes ago, uh, there was a discussion about how since the Catholic Church doesn't denounce the priests that misbehave, the goal of the Catholic Church must be to abuse little altar boys. And I found that argument wanting on uh, many levels, but uh, the thing that actually occurred to me was that's very similar to the argument that all Muslims support terrorism because there's not a very large denouncement of terrorism from the um, Muslim community. And um, so I have a problem with just trying to paint a broad brush there. Um, I don't think it's fair to either Catholics or Muslims to say um, that their lack of denouncement is supporting the misbehavior. Uh, all, that being said, I wish there was a lot more denouncement of these, uh, these bad acts. But uh, that's my thoughts. Uh, keep up the good work. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Jason again, lost in the cornfields of Iowa. Just letting you know uh, I love that piece from Bill Moyers. It infuriated, enraged, and made me feel just completely betrayed by the leadership in this country all at the same time. So it's a job well done. But I can't understand why we still support the evangelical vote, even though they make up a large majority of the country and that they supposedly answer to a higher power that's supposed to be better than all of us, and they're supposedly better than all of us because of this, but if anything, their actions have shown that we can't trust them to do what's best for this country. We can't trust them to have the interests of the poor and the working class in mind, and we sure as hell can't trust them to be moral, upstanding human beings when they do things like banning abortion or banning voting rights for certain people. Uh, read that however you want. If we could possibly get more atheists in the world and maybe get away from this whole dogmatic principle that the society seems to be based on and seems to want to run with, even though it's proven time and time again that all the dogmatic society really wants is war and war and never peace. Well, thanks for the show, Jay, and I'm probably going to go back home tonight and check out that uh, Bill Moyers piece. I can hear the whole thing, but thanks a lot again. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Stacy from the Bay Area, and uh, I'm calling to just uh, voice a little bit of, um, I don't know, reaction I had to a clip that you played from Blacking It Up that, well, they're not called Blacking It Up anymore. They're called... um, this week in blackness now and you played it i think at the end of august and it was a clip when uh elon was was telling eljoy about his experiences of just being a a young black man um out in public and it was something that just really rang true to me it now i've i've listened to your show for a couple of years now and you know it's made me laugh and it's made me angry um, but only on two occasions that I can remember has something on your show brought me to tears. And this was one of them. And um, I emailed Elon about it. And I, I wanted to um, 
just get this out there to you and your listeners too, just to put it out there. Um, so I think the best thing to do is just for me to uh, read you this short email I wrote to Elon. So here goes. Hi, Elon. I learned about your show through Jay Tomlinson's podcast, Best of the Left, and I'm really glad to have been turned on to your stuff. The most recent Best of the Left show that had a clip of yours was one in which you were telling Eljoy about what it feels like to be a black man in public, say, walking into a store and not buying anything. All the eyes on you, the need to keep your hands visible and your bag closed, as if to advertise, see, I didn't steal anything, even though I'm a young black man. You brought actual tears to my eyes, and let me tell you why. Recently on Jay's show, there was a discussion or a debate among the listeners about the concept of privilege, white privilege, male privilege, straight privilege, etc. And I had emailed Jay my two cents on the matter, and my note had to deal with uh, what it feels like to be a woman in public. I always know where the other people on the street are, which way and how fast they're going, which sides of the streets um, have alcoves, where the side streets are. I always know where the exits and escape routes are in restaurants and theaters. I never sit with my back to the door. When there's a man behind me I feel, and I feel at all concerned about it, I start to look around to see what objects I can reach that I could use to protect myself if I need to. This is just how I go through the world. It's not something I turn off and turn on as needed. It's my constant orientation to the world because I'm a woman and women are targets. It's the one thing all women have in common, no matter our race, age, size, sexual orientation, socioeconomic bracket. We're all targets because of the bodies we were born with, female bodies. Official statistics, in quotes, say one quarter of us already know firsthand all about sexual assault. I'm convinced that that statistic is higher than the, quote, official number, unquote. Every last one of us, from young girls to senior citizens, has been sexually harassed in public at some time or another. Sometimes it's a wolf whistle or a lewd remark that intrudes on our peace of mind. Sometimes it's something menacing that makes us fear for our safety. Hearing you talk about your experiences in the same voice that I have internally about my own experiences really drove it home for me. You spoke of it just being a matter of fact, just the way your daily life is, so much that you don't even think of it as wrong or abnormal. Yeah, I got it. I don't think of my state of constant vigilance in public as anything out of the ordinary. I should, and you should, be able to see such a chronic state of mind as very much out of the ordinary, as just not the way it should be. And that is what privilege protects against. And then I finished up with a couple of words of thanks and stuff for Elon. But, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what I want to have come of this uh, voicemail just to make contact with you and, and uh, say, first of all, that um, that was that was a teachable moment for me that was that was important and uh i'm grateful to you for you know being so thoughtful about uh the things that you put on the air and and uh the discussion that you kind of facilitate so thanks for that jay take care bye-bye Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, a few months ago now, uh, we started a new segment on the show called Best of the Left Activism Updates because you know the idea is to really expand from just bringing you great news and information, but actually uh, give you information uh, about what you can do 
with all of that news and information that you've uh, you know just gotten from the show, how you can become active, make a difference in the world, that sort of thing. And so this whole project is being spearheaded by Lauren, my friend and colleague who uh, you know works on the show. And so this whole segment has been on hiatus for a few weeks while she's actually just been uh, out of the country studying abroad, uh, being very worldly and knowledgeable and that sort of thing. Uh, but it will be coming back very soon, so I want to let you know that. Uh, but I, I want to bring it up specifically to mention for the first time, but definitely not the last time, that we would love listener input for that segment. I mean, Lauren does a great job uh, compiling all of the best sources for activism opportunities that she knows about and sorts through them all and picks out the best ones and then uh, you know brings you the news about it. But if you know of something, we would love to hear about it. So what you can do, if you know about any activist opportunities that you think should be talked about on Best of the Left, just send an email with whatever the relevant details are to lauren at bestoftheleft.com. Pretty simple, straightforward, and if you have interesting opportunities to talk about, effective, because they'll get talked about on the show, and uh, you know Lauren will definitely be getting those messages, will definitely uh, follow up on every lead that comes in. So if you know of any, please don't hesitate to send those along, because that's kind of what we're here for. You know, We want to aggregate and amplify the best activist opportunities there are out there, and the only way to do that most effectively is to have the biggest possible net to catch all of the different uh, opportunities that are out there. So thanks in advance for your help. And that email address again is lauren at bestoftheleft.com. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. And especially thanks to those who support the show financially by becoming a member for as little as five bucks a month. You know, it is not a lot of money, but all combined, it is the members uh, together who are absolutely the cornerstone of what make this show possible. You know, not just the show, but Lauren and the activist opportunities Everything comes from members, so if you're interested in supporting the show, that is the best way to do it. Uh, Signing up for membership, of course, can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right